Grab your Bibles now and let's resume our study of the book of Job. And while you're finding chapter 28, I'll mention this is the last time. The last time you'll hear me say this or make this announcement. It has to do with this this trip, Lord willing, that we're planning to Israel. It's in the middle of February. Uh, if you're interested in getting in the loop, you don't have you're not obligated to a thing. But if you're if you want to uh, give it some thought, uh, I'll need a, a name and an email address uh, before you leave. You can come and get that done on the way out. Now, I want to read you from chapter 28 of the book of Job, beginning at verse 20. You follow as, as I read the, from verse 20 to the end of the chapter of Job 28. Here we go. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God It endures forever. Guys, my sermon this morning is really the second half of a sermon that I started two weeks ago on this same chapter, chapter 28 of the book of Job. Uh, Chapter 28 is, is a chapter about wisdom. And I said to you two weeks ago that there's of the 42 chapters in the book of Job, but this is the one that I think I understand the best. But um, just as a little refresher, you may recall that the first 11 verses of chapter 28, Job is talking about uh, his fellow man at the time digging in the mountains for gold and silver and precious jewels and how they would take their pickaxe and their shovels and they would, they would try to use all of the mining techniques of the day, all of the technology available to them, and they would search for precious uh, metals and, and jewels. And then he comes to verse 12, um, which is, is, is really a, uh, a watershed, a pivotal verse in, in chapter 28. He says, you know, we know where to find gold, we know where to find silver, but where can we find wisdom? Where's wisdom to be found? And then the next verse, verse 13, in, in a rather plaintive cry, he says in verse 13, he says that it is not to be found in the land of the living. Where can I find wisdom? I can't. It's not to be found in the land of the living. And then in verse 20, as you may recall, he introduces a new idea. He he takes his thought in a different direction. He says, okay, I can't find it. I can't use my pickaxe and dig for it, but it can come to me. That's what he says in verse 20. Where then does wisdom come? If, if, if I can't dig it out of the earth, if I can't, 
obtain it. Maybe it can come to me. Maybe it can come to me from a source that is outside of me. And then, of course, in verse 23, he identifies the source. God understands the way to it. Now, guys, um, my theme today is, is, is pretty much the, the same one that I was trying to make two weeks ago in the, in the first half of this sermon. And the theme really is to emphasize that we were never intended to be our own source of wisdom. And, and until you come to that point where Job did in verse 13, where he recognizes that, that uh, wisdom is not found on the land, until you come to that spot, wisdom will always elude you. I, I'm, um, I'm not saying that you can't be intelligent. I'm simply saying you can't be wise. And those, those, are, those are two different things, ladies and gentlemen. Um, wisdom is competence in the face of life's complexities. Intelligence is a different thing. And so much of life, the need is not so much for intelligence as it is for wisdom. And so if you never come to this place that you find in verse 13, or what Job is saying in verse 13, wisdom will never be yours. The first step to wisdom is to realize, I don't have wisdom. It's not within me. Um, I can't manufacture it. I can't dig for it. I can't find it. But it can come to me from outside of me. It can come to me. I can't can't find it, but it can come to me. Guys, we, we are intended to be wisdom receivers, not wisdom originators. We, we, we receive it uh, from its one and only source, identified in verse 23, God. Um, I, I said two weeks ago that in Genesis 1 and 2, one of the, one of the marvelous distinctives between us and the animal kingdom is that God talks to us. He doesn't talk to the animal kingdom. One of the uniquenesses that we have of being made in his image is that God talks to us. Now, now knowing that, knowing that that the source of wisdom is God, the next thing we're told in this passage is that what it might look like were were we to ever receive it. Um, You know, I've, I've received some... But how do I receive more? And, and, and if I were to receive it, what would it look like? If I were wise, if wisdom, <coughs> if I had found it, if it had come to me, what would it look like? And that's what we want to talk about this morning, guys. And that's what's contained in this last half of the chapter. My text really is verse 28. But before we get to the, um, to the real heart of verse 28, I want, you to show, I want to show you something in verse 28 that I think is very, very significant. There's a, there's a preface. There's a, there's a prelude to the heart and the matter of verse 28. And it's five words. And he said to man, 
There again, God is portrayed as talking, as speaking. And our obligation, folks, is to listen to that. Um, guys, I need to lay down my pickaxe and turn my attention to a talking God. A God that doesn't want me to live in the dark. He doesn't want me to live in my ignorance, but I will live in my ignorance if I don't put down my pickaxe and listen. Guys, um, wisdom will never be found until I lay down that pickaxe and I listen to the God who speaks to me. You know, when our kids were, our girls were young, and I, I was really trying to be emphatic and make a point so that they'd listen, and I'd look at them and I'd say, now listen, girls, I want you to listen to me with both ears. I'm suggesting that the first five words of verse 28 is, is, is something like that. God looking at his people and saying, I'm about to say something pretty dadgum important. So would you listen up? And, and I want you to notice he says, those first five, he's, and he said to man. It doesn't say he said to Adam. Or he doesn't say to, he said to Job. He said to man. This is not advice intended just for Job. It's advice intended for all of us. And what is that advice? I wonder how many times this week you've prayed for wisdom. I wonder how many times in your life you've prayed for wisdom. Do you know what it looks like? I mean, do you need it? Would you like to have some? Well, if you had some, what would it look like? Listen. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You know, guys, there are many, um, particularly in our day, who are very uncomfortable with his biblical word, fear. They, 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 they suggest that it's a bit too strong a word to describe a, a relationship that, that we might have with a loving Heavenly Father. And so they, they prefer to soften the term, and so they substitute words like reverence. Awe. Those are good words. Uh, even wonder or silence. Because they just don't, they're just not comfortable with that word, fear. Now guys, I, I understand the sentiment. I understand the, the, the concern that, that is being expressed. But this morning I'd like to make a point. You want, you want my sermon in, um, Three words. Here it is. Here's the point of my point. <laughs> this, is the, this is the point of my argument. The point of my case. Summarized in three words. Fear means fear. 
And, and I'd like to convince you of that. I'd like to somehow convince you that what is being said here by God, a talking God who calls for our attention by saying, Hey, everybody, listen up. I'm about to say something pretty important here. And God said to you, the fear of the Lord. That's wisdom. And I'm, I simply want to make the point that fear means fear. Um, you, you know, um, to, to make my point, I've got several little pieces of evidence that you might like. Um, my first stop is in a, in a statement made by the, David. You know, um, the, the psalmist, the shepherd boy of Israel, the, uh, the forerunner of Christ, the, the slayer of Goliath, the king of Israel, David, that man. You know, the one that everybody likes to say, he's the man after God's own heart. Uh, you know, that guy. Here's something that he said in Psalm 119, verse 120. He says, my flesh trembles for fear of you. David said that. But, 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 I mean, but David, I mean, what does he know? I mean, he's an Old Testament dude. You know, uh, yeah, I know, he was quite a saint in his time. But we've moved on from that. I mean, we're way beyond that. My flesh trembles for fear of you. <laughs> How unsophisticated. Well, how about Paul? The Apostle Paul. That's pretty New Testament, isn't it? Paul says uh, in Philippians 2, Work out your own salvation in reverence and awe. He doesn't say that. What he says is, work out your own salvation in fear. And then he adds, trembling. Fear and trembling. You know, there's a story. There's a story in, uh, in Acts chapter 5. By the way, that's in the New Testament too. Acts, the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 5. It's about these two people, a husband and a wife, by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. Those are some cute names. Ananias and Sapphira. Well, everybody in the church was selling all their property and they were giving the proceeds to the church. And so Ananias and Sapphira saw that that was a good thing. And so they went out and sold their property and, and they gave the proceeds, except they only gave half of the proceeds uh, of the sale of their land to the church. And, but they represented it as being the whole thing. And um, they were discovered as being liars. And so Peter reproaches um, Ananias, the, the husband, and says, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? Why did you do that? You and your wife are going to pay for that with your life. And they're both slain. And in Acts 5, it says, and great fear came upon the church. (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) No more. We don't want any of that that business. We don't need need to be, uh, we don't need to do that. I say we do. There's this um, famous dialogue, and you've probably heard this before. Um, this is from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, it's in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a great, I mean, craft, 
cheese, made a movie out of it, put it on television years ago. And the first time I saw it, I was just overcome. And you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Christ figure is a lion. His name is Aslan. If you ever read, I mean, they've made three movies. they made three movies out of three of the Chronicles. I think there's five in total. Maybe there's six. I've read them all, but um, they, they've made um, um, movies out of them. And so uh, the, the most famous is, is the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is the, it's the first one of Lewis's. And, um, and so they're kind of introducing this whole idea of Aslan. Aslan, the, you know, the, the, the Christ figure. And so this is, a, I want to read you this little dialogue. It's a dialogue between Susan... Peter, Lucy, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Now, they're beavers. <laughs> In the Chronicles, they're beavers. Not Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, like, you know, leave it to beaver. But they're beavers. They're really beavers. And, and the dialogue goes like this. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why, don't you know? He's the king. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he... Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking... They're either braver than most or else just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter. Even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Oh, that's a bunch of foolishness now, isn't it? (laughs) Well, we don't need that business anymore. Is it safe? Of course it isn't safe. Who said anything about being safe? But he's good. You know, one of the hymns that we love to sing, what's the name of that hymn? I, you know, I keep forgetting the name of it because we, we don't know it very well. It's by Bunyan. Oh, I remember. Amazing Grace. There's a line in it. You remember this line that you sing again and again and you love so? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Did grace teach you that? It should have. Because, ladies and gentlemen, fear means fear. Guys, I'm not trying to scare you or produce dread by no means. 
But fear means fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Is, is there not a certain scariness about being in the presence of deity? Is it not proper and right that we should, aff- that we should fear to offend in any way the one who created us? Ladies and gentlemen, I, and I, I, I can take the rest of the week and demonstrate this, but I'm telling you, Scripture testifies overwhelmingly that there is a healthy and an appropriate place for fear in the life of faith. In an, in an evangelical environment that has turned God into some kind of celestial mush, isn't it time for someone to call the people of God to tremble in the presence of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is that somehow contrary? Contrary to, to knowing how secure I am in his love? I say to you, no, it is not contrary. They're perfectly consistent. There is a holy fear, ladies and gentlemen. There's a, there's a salutary fear. A fear that does not need to be watered down into the term respect. Guys, I respect many of you. But I fear God. Okay, Jimmy, um, that's enough. Point made. Then tell me, what, what, is, what is all that about? I mean, what does it look like? What does that mean in, in, um, in practical terms? What, what is this fear of the Lord? Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the text tells you. Now, I've got to do this real fast. I, I took a little bit more time to do this on Wednesday nights, but I've got to do this real fast. Guys, the, the Bible has different kinds of literature. It has historical books. It has apocalyptic books. It has what's known as wisdom literature. Um, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, those are called wisdom books, wisdom literature. The poets, or the people who wrote the wisdom literature, they're called the poets. If you go to seminary, you'll take a course called the poets. And um, you'll, you'll study wisdom literature. And in, and in Hebrew wisdom literature, uh, when, they, when they wrote things, they didn't write poetry as we know it. You know, we, we, we like to rhyme words, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, and I'm obnoxious, and so are you, or, I mean, that's the way we, we think of poetry. That's not the way they do it in the, in, in the Hebrew text, guys. What they did is they would make a statement, and then they'd come back and make the same statement in different words. It's called synonymous parallelism. That'll impress your friends. It's a synonym. He writes one sentence, and then he writes the same sentence as a synonym of the first half. He writes it in different words with synonyms and their parallel. Synonymous parallelism. Notice, classic example. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so the author is thinking, okay, what word will I use for wisdom? What word can I use as a, as a synonym for wisdom? Okay, I got it. Understanding. <clears throat> That's the word 
that is synonymous for wisdom. And then he says, okay, the fear of the Lord. What is that? What can I use as a synonym for the fear of the Lord? What is it that would equate to the fear of the Lord? There it is. And to turn from evil is understanding. Guys, I think our campaign to tame the living God shows up in a lot of ways, but primarily it shows up in our casual willingness to toy with sin. Gang, um, do you remember Sinai, the law, the Ten Commandments, yada, 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 and, and Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, you know, and, and the people are next to the mountain and they're all afraid of the mountain and, and um, <clears throat> they, they don't want to get close. And, and then in chapter 20, it's in Exodus 20, right with the law, this is 2020, Exodus 2020, you get this statement. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Did you, did you get that? He says, do not fear. For God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you. That you may not sin. Hey, 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 don't fear. But fear. Well, I don't get that. Guys, it's the same thing that you find over here. And then he says, fear so that you may not sin. You know, John Donne once said, Lord, give me a fear of which I may not be afraid. Okay, guys, to that end, here's a definition for you. Fear. As is being mentioned in Job 28, as is being mentioned in Exodus 20, fear is an inward attitude of heart that prompts me to turn away from evil. Can I make this application? Do you know why there's so much Toying with sin amongst the people of God. Why it's said that 30% of professing Christian men are hooked on internet porn. You know why that is, ladies and gentlemen? Because they don't fear God. And some preacher told them they didn't have to. And I'm here to tell you, you've been lied to. Do you know what they call the people who fear the Lord and turn away from their sin? They call them wise. When we fear God properly, all those other fears that so paralyze us, fear of people and fear of rejection and fear of dying and fear of living, all those phobias get rolled up into one great big ball and it gets pushed up a hill by the name of Calvary. By the way, here's my piece de resistance. 
this is my this is my best argument, ladies and gentlemen. Um, did you know? Um, well, numerous times Jesus tells us he comforts his people by telling them, "Fear not, fear not, fear not." But there's one place where he says, "Fear." You know where that's found? That's in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Can I read you those just two verses? Luke 12, 4 and 5. Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you, says Jesus, whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you. Fear him. Who is it that has that authority to cast into hell? Whoever that is, Jesus says, you fear him. Jesus is telling us not to waste our fears on anyone less than God Almighty. When we cower before the devil or before people, we open the door to all manners of fears. But when we fear the Lord aright, then we have nothing to fear from Satan or from any other quarter for that matter. The fear of the Lord, ladies and gentlemen, is the beginning of wisdom. When you reduce fear, you reduce wisdom. And and, and let me say it differently. Failing to fear God shows up in our trifling with sin, which means we are very unwise. By the way, what kind of people do you want to follow? What kind of people do you want in leadership? What kind of people do you want to lead you? What kind of people do you find that it's comfortable to be be following? Well, listen to this. This is in Exodus 8. Moreover, look for able men from all the people and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and tens. I left out part of it on purpose. Look for able men from all the people. Men who fear God. Who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. You know why they hate a bribe? Because they fear God. And then he says, and place those men over the people as chiefs of thousands and hundreds and fifties. So what we've got is people leading the people of God who are telling them that Fear means respect. I respect many of you. But I fear only God. Guys, uh, a couple years ago, several years ago, maybe five or six years ago, um, I was on my way back home from India. You know, I go to India, Lord willing, every two years. I'm supposed to go again in February of this next year, and on my way back, I stopped in Amsterdam, and I spent uh, two days in Amsterdam by myself. I, I don't like being without Susie, you know, 
for any time period, but I just, I wanted to, there was something particular that I wanted to do in Amsterdam, and I wanted to go to the Rijksmuseum. If you ever heard of the Rijksmuseum, it's one of the, um, the world-class museums in all, uh, anywhere to be found. It's, um, it's really a combination of a museum and an art gallery. And believe it or not, the thing that drove me in there was my interest in the art, not the, not the historical, not the artifacts, but the art. Because I had, over the years, developed a little interest in Rembrandt, who is Dutch, as you know, and, um, and we've got a couple of Rembrandt's painting, or, uh, prints hanging in our, not our, not his paintings, uh, prints hanging in our, in our house, and I, I've really developed a love for uh, Rembrandt. And I know about this much about Rembrandt. I've read a couple of books on Rembrandt, but I've always uh, found it to be quite interesting. And much of his work, because he was Dutch, is in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. And so I I wanted to see his work. I wanted to see it, you know, live. (laughs) And so, you know, when you enter this, and they let you in in groups because it's packed. The places, you have to stand in line just to get in the group, just so you can get in, pay your money, and... So I forget what it costs to get in, I don't know, eight euro or something. And then when you're there, when you're paying your entrance fee, they offer you this little device, this little device, you know, these earphones that you put on and it's got this little thing on here and, 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 it, and it steers you through the museum, you know, and you turn here and there's number 12 and there's number 13 and there's, a, and then you, you stand in front of number 14 and, and the thing tells you about what you're looking at and when this one came and when that one came and yada, yada, yada. And, and it's just fascinating. I spent the whole day in the Reich's Museum. And that's why I spent those days there. I wanted to go to the Rights Museum. Interestingly, Susie and I went back um, a couple of years later, and I stayed outside while she went through. It took her about 45 minutes to get through there. <laughs> I spent all day, uh, uh, but I mean, she didn't, and she was back out. And, and uh, But anyway, I, I loved it. But I would, I would stand in front of those things and just look at them. And then, of course, the, the little device is steering you through the, 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 uh, the thing. And um, the, at the end... When it's steering you to the exit, when you're about to leave the whole kitten caboodle, they save the best for last. As you're leaving, ladies and gentlemen, you are confronted by one of the most <laughs> spectacular pieces of art anywhere. The, the, uh, art experts would tell you that. It's one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings. In fact, I bought a book when I was in there, and that painting is on the front of this book. It's, um, it was, he, he did it in 1642. It was at the height of his prominence, at the height of his, his popularity. It's considered his most dramatic group portrait. And when I say it confronts you, I, I, what I mean by that is, it's huge. It's 12 feet 2 inches by 14 feet 7 inches. And it was cut down to that size in the 18th century. It is stunning. It's, um, it, it contains 31 figures, of which 16 were portraits. <clears throat> the colors are magnificent. The details... <clears throat> Amazing. And, and I tell you all that story to, to say this. One of the things that I noticed that when people got to this point, including me, we, we came to the place where this, 
this painting was hanging. And there was a hush that came over all of us. I mean, prior to arriving there, there people were loud and jocular. And, but you, you, you come to this painting and everybody stood still. And they shut up. Because you knew that you were in the presence of, of, of greatness. People were overcome. I, I was overcome. They were, they, were, they were almost reverent. They were silenced by what they were looking at. And, and you're standing there and you're thinking... How does somebody do that? What kind of genius, what kind of brilliance is required to do something like that? And, and I must have stood there 45 minutes. And, and, and not to overstate my case, I'm pretty good at overstating. But in some ways, it just takes your breath away. You're, you're, you're spellbound to be in the presence of something that masterful. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, it is a bit of what David meant, the psalmist, when he wrote, Be still. Be still and know that I am. If I could put it rather crudely, shut up. You're in the presence of deity. Guys, it ought not surprise us to find that our flesh trembles and quakes in the presence of infinite holiness. It's threatening. And it's threatening because it means we lose control. And when that happens, wisdom expands. It grows. Our ears are unstopped. And we begin to listen more carefully to the only source of wisdom there is. And ladies and gentlemen, I think that is one of the purposes of pain. So when you experience something like Job, you finally come to the place where you shut up! One of the things you hear is that you hear God say, Have you considered my son? Well, have you? You know, ladies and gentlemen, that song that I mentioned a moment ago, Amazing Grace.
It was grace that taught my heart to fear. That song goes on to say this. It was grace. My fears relieved. When you consider this Jesus Christ, then any fear of judgment and condemnation is over. And then I spend the rest of my life walking in fear of the God who has saved me in Christ Jesus. And they call those people wise. Our Father, I, d- I do pray that you'll help me rightly communicate what I, what I find in this text. And if I um, have wrongly communicated it, would you... Um, you correct my errors. But Lord, would you awaken the people of God to the place where we finally are done with our human efforts, our self-salvation projects, that we put down our pickaxe and we come and we bow in humble submission and adoration before the God who is. A God before whom all of us will stand. A God who has made himself known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then, Father, those who have received him, what we long for now is something that we cannot find any other place than from you. And we know that its beginning is when we come to fear you. Might we find among us a group of people who so revere you so fear you that they wouldn't dream of trifling with sin. Father, if you brought people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, would you cause them to see him in all of his beauty, even now? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.